Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. Today, we're going to be listening to an episode that originally published December 17th, 2019, about gigantic prehistoric fungus. That's right. Prototaxitis, I believe, is the uh, the pronunciation. I, I think I think we, we labored over it enough that it's stuck in my head. Uh, but this is a fun one. I think we, we did a little skit for this one with time travelers at the beginning. The time traveler, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, turned his attention at last to the Devonian period. His pale gray eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face became flushed and animated. The calm of morning was upon the world, a world in its greening, the springtime of the earth. The environment was arid and warm, and everywhere I walked I observed forests of moss and clusters of shrub-like ferns and horsetails. Amid them crept primitive arthropods and something that looked remarkably like a winged insect, though I did not catch it in the act of flight. But there were no leaves, no true trees to lift a canopy above my head, for what I at first took for primitive conifers proved anything but. Each of these cylindrical giants stood some twenty feet high and were a good yard wide. They towered above the Devonian world like stylite pillars, and I observed just a hint of spores carried away from their bizarre heights. I wondered then, might these organisms be giant mushrooms? But that's when the Morlocks came at me. The Morlocks, I said. Surely the Morlocks existed far in the future. What were they doing in the Devonian? Well, they stole my time machine and they followed me. But you arrived there in your time machine. Well, they stole it from the future. But surely Look, time travel is very complicated. No further questions. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And in that cold open, we had a little fun with H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, uh, which, of course, is a, is, is a wonderful novel, uh, well worth seeking out, even in, in today's uh, uh, technically advanced times. I remember liking it when I read it, but I don't recall. Does he actually go into the prehistoric past? Well, he certainly goes into the far, far future, which right. is kind of my inspiration for that, because he goes, he goes so far into the future that the world is just an alien landscape. Uh-huh. But one of the fun things is that if you travel back far enough in time, you also encounter an alien landscape. Like that is what uh, the surface world of the Devonian period 400 million years ago basically was. And so it was um, you know, irresistible to use the time traveler here as a, as a way of sort of imagining what it would, might be like uh, to walk uh, amid this stra- these strange uh, uh, specimens, this, all this weird uh, Devonian flora, and to glimpse in the wild uh, a living specimen of an organism that continues to mystify us. In the past, it's been called a mystery fossil even, and that is prototaxites. Yes. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about the world of prehistoric fungus. This is is something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time uh, because you know, fungus in the fossil record, I think there's actually a lot of interesting stuff we could explore. But the keystone of today's episode is going to be, yeah, the, the fossil remains of these giant stylite organisms from hundreds of millions of years ago that were the tallest standing things of their time. And we don't know for sure what they were. We have, we have better ideas than we used to, and, and we'll get into that as the episode goes on. But yeah, try to imagine yourself as a paleontologist digging into the strata from a period hundreds of millions of years ago where there were no trees, there's no there are no forests on the earth, but you find these six-meter-high giant pillars of something that was alive. Yeah, and you, you can see, if you look up uh, images of uh, prototaxites, you'll, you'll You'll see people posing with uh, the fossil remnants, uh-huh. uh, and it looks like uh, like a massive pillar, or even in the way it's broken in some of these uh, these fossils, it looks like it could be the, the you know the neck bone of some uh, the, of some enormous creature. Uh-huh. Uh, like there's an enormity to the fossil uh, that that makes it so irresistible. It is a giant of the past, but it is not uh, it is not an, an animal. It is uh, it is something else. Yeah. Uh, we don't know exactly what. Uh, uh, Prototaxites looked like uh, when it was alive. There are different interpretations of it, but uh, some of the uh, interpretations uh, and, and resulting illustrations really give it a kind of 
oh, almost like a Giger-esque or Lovecraftian appearance of something that looks truly like a um, like like pillars, like towers, like little mo- like not little uh, you know towering monoliths, um, and and certainly they were the the largest and tallest feature of the Devonian terrestrial uh, uh, environment. It dominated the early and early middle Devonian period, though it eventually gives way to the rise of shrubs and early and other early plants in the late Devonian. Uh, but it is, to say the least, a very tantalizing fossil that can, continues to be something of a mystery fossil. So uh, to, to get to the, the origin of the fossil find itself, we have to go back um, roughly 176 years. And uh, that is when, in 1843, Canadian-born geologist William Edmund Logan unearthed fossil remnants of Devonian flora. And the classification of uh, the Devonian period, by the way, only dates back to the 1830s. Uh, so it was you know, kind of a revolutionary time in just geologic discovery in general. Mm-hmm. The name of the Devonian, of course, comes from the, the Devon area in England where some of these uh – uh, fossil finds come from. So Logan found uh, these the, the specimens in the exposed sections of a Devonian rock on the shores of, uh, the, I believe it's Gaspe Bay in Quebec, and particularly an area that is called Seal Cove, uh, which he was mapping for coal and other minerals. Oh, well, uh, this, this fits in with the great Canadian tradition of, uh, of awesome fossil sites being discovered in, you know, not originally by paleontologists, but by people developing industry and heavy heavy transport and stuff like uh, think about how the the shale beds like the Burgess shale mm-hmm. in the Canadian Rockies were originally found because railroad workers who were building railroads through the area were finding these stone bugs everywhere and that eventually attracted the attention of paleontologists to come and investigate oh yeah the world of trilobites right yeah and other creatures of course which we'll get back to later so uh, I, I want to note that one of uh, one of my key sources on the the, the early history of this fossil find uh, comes to us from paleobiologist Francis Huber of the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., who wrote um, a 2001 piece uh, titled uh, Rotted Wood Algae Fungus, the History and Life of uh, Prototaxites, Dawson, 1859. And it's uh, just a tremendous source on all of this, but it's also very concerned with naming, renaming, and misnaming things, Mm -hmm. Uh, even getting into the various names used by Logan and others to designate the cove in which they, they found this. But it, at times, it may seem a little tedious if, if you read it in full, but uh, fair enough, citation and, uh, and, and miscitation and the illegitimate renaming of things is a vital part of this fossil's human history. Yeah, well, you know, you got to get people to agree on what they call things or it's going to be a lot harder to talk about them. Yeah. And it it can become quite a dramatic issue, as we'll unravel here. So in 1855, Logan's Devonian flora fossils passed into the hands of noted Canadian geologist John William Dawson. Uh, who, by the way, the mineral Dawsonite is named in his honor. Uh, he was particularly taken by a large specimen with a, with a peculiar interior structure. It resembled a large tree, but under a microscope, it became clear that the um, fossilized tissue was uh, 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 silicified, uh, you know, containing an entangled mesh that resembled fungal mycelia. He even noted the mycelia resemblance himself uh, in his writings, but he didn't really explore it further. Uh, I mean, he did not explore the, explore the fungal angle further, uh, but he was very very interested in this fossil. He traveled to Seal Cove himself and obtained additional samples. Okay, so they found this giant fossilized trunk of something. It looks like it could be the trunk of a tree, but examining it on a microscopic level, it looks more like the texture of fungus than it does the texture of plant matter. Right, yeah, particularly yeah, mycelia. Now, now, mycelium is the vegetative part of a fungus, uh, just a reminder to everybody. It's a, it's a mass of branching vein-like uh, hyphae that you'll find underground or in whatever the mushroom uh, or the, the fruiting body is emerging from. Yeah. The mushroom itself is a death emergence. Life is actually thriving beneath the surface. The mushroom comes up to, uh, to release spores. Yeah, it's a reproductive organ. Yeah. 
Now, the way Dawson interpreted this uh, this uh, this fossil was okay. We have something that looks like uh, like fungus. Mm-hmm. So what we have here is probably a rotting conifer tree. Uh, you know, an early conifer tree. It's rotting. It's decomposing. So I'm seeing the decomposer fungus within the decomposing. Uh, uh, specimen, all of this preserved in a single fossil specimen. Oh, that would make sense. It's, it is a tree trunk. It's infested with fungal mycelia type structures. Right. And so he gave it the name Prototaxites, or essentially first U, referring to the U family Taxacea. Uh, so the, the U tree. Right. Okay. Yeah. So so the the actual name is, is, is referring to uh, a conifer resemblance. So uh, he puts these ideas out there. And then, um, you know, quite as a surprise to Dawson, a Scottish botanist by the name of William C. Carruthers proposed a different interpretation. Uh, he said, it, well, this is perhaps the fossil remains of a very large uh, algae, uh, you know, aquatic or perhaps terrestrial in nature. Uh, algae, of course, can grow in weird places like on ice and snow. Uh, so he declared a new name. He said, nope, we're not going to call this Prototaxites. We're going to call this Nematophycus. Okay. Uh, but wait a minute. An algae, that, like a giant fossilized algae the size of a tree trunk? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's creepy. Well, yeah. One of the things, and this is pointed out by others that have studied, is like there's basically no non-weird explanation for this weird <laughs> yes. fossil. Yeah, um, we'll get to several comments like that later. Yeah, there's no like normal way of looking at it. <laughs> Now here's here's the thing about uh, Carruthers coming along and saying no, this is Nemo uh, Nematophycus. Uh-huh. First of all, there are rules uh, with with the naming of things, even at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're not allowed to just come and give it a new name. That it's an illegitimate renaming. Uh, so so that alone is kind of weird and and rude. Uh-huh. But then also, according to Huber, uh, Carruthers was just scathing and very personal in his criticism. Quote scathing and slanderous uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, criticizing Dawson. And it seemed to have like really caught Dawson off guard. Uh-huh. Um, you know, based on these descriptions, one is tempted. I don't, do not know much about uh, William C. Carruthers, but, but just based on Huber's writing, one is tempted to view Carruthers as, as something of a bully in his field, uh-huh. uh, while also being a, an extremely uh, you know, respected botanist. Uh, but then again, perhaps our, our, our vision of this rivalry is incomplete. Well, if that interpretation is Correct. He, he would not be the only legitimately good scientist who also is lacking in manners in yeah. one way or another. <laughs> so um, according to Huber, uh, Dawson fought for his initial classification, but but then later he ends up rejecting it, uh, apparently even trying to, to, to make it seem as if, as if he never connected the fossil to conifers at all. And then he himself in his 1888 book, The Geological History of Plants, illegitimately used the name uh, nematophycus instead of prototaxites. Huh. Uh, so I imagine that at least to the time that Huber was writing in like 2001, you don't do this. You right. don't just like switch the name to something else without a, I don't know, I'd imagine a lot of fields have like an international naming committee that if there is going to be a name change would have to agree on it or something. Yeah. I mean, it's it's why, for instance, uh, like one's fossil that we've discussed on the, on the show before, uh, uh, Basilosaurus. Okay. Okay. Uh, I hear Saurus in there. That means lizard, right? Yeah, it means king lizard. Uh, But it was not, uh, we know now it was not a a lizard at all. It's a mammal. It was a mammal. Uh, But we we don't go back and change the name uh, in this case. So it's a similar case here. The name Prototaxites stuck and did stick, despite uh, Carruthers' uh, uh, notion that we should switch to a different name. Yeah, and that name also, Prototaxites, is still used today. But names aside, so Carruthers is pushing this interpretation. Okay, this is not a rotting conifer tree that's full of kind of fungal infestation. This is a giant alga. So what happens with this interpretation? Well, this becomes the dominant interpretation uh, for a while, and it it basically goes unquestioned until 1919 when one A.H. Church brings up the possibility that this is a fungus after all, considering the size is achieved by by certain um, contemporary fungus uh, specimens such as 
is a uh, uh, you know various woody uh, decomposer fungi. Uh, but this idea didn't take off. He seems to have, uh, according to Huber, basically this guy was ignored, and uh, the Alja interpretation continued with papers in you know as, as recent as say 1979 and 1983, continuing this thread of interpretation. I think it is worth stepping back to just appreciate again the physical form of this thing we're talking about. The fossil records indicate that whatever this was, alga, rotting conifer tree, or even fungus, it was huge. You know, I've seen estimates of a maximum known height of six or even eight meters, so like 20 to 25 feet. So you've got a giant six meter high stalk of whatever it was, Mm -hmm. something that was alive at a time when we have no evidence that any vertebrates had yet left the water. There were no trees or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like it's like a tree that's not a tree. Yeah. It's it's a it's a weird column of life uh, that exists before there should be anything like a column. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier I think that this would have been at a time where this would have been without question the tallest living thing on land. No no trees, nothing stood above it. And I'm trying to imagine the implications of that if we were to live in this world because here's one for you. When you think of the word nature, what's mm-hmm. the first thing that pops into your head? It might vary person to person. Maybe you're not like me. But I think most people, at least in tree-filled ecoregions, think trees when they think nature. Yeah. Or, you know, even if I, you know, I really love the, the landscape of, um, uh, of say, Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, enco- enco- encompasses a, a, a variety of different um, environments. But, but even if you're thinking about the desert, you're probably thinking about cacti. Yeah, uh, because uh, like the tallest features in a landscape, I think naturally become definitive of that landscape for us. When you think city, you mm-hmm. think buildings. Right. When you think nature, uh, again, this might be different for people who live in say like treeless environments. Say if you live in a steppe or something, but if you live in an area with there are trees, the trees become synonymous with nature. They're the iconic life form. Like, what does the Lorax speak for? <laughs> you know, the, the the suggestion is that he speaks for nature, but he speaks for the trees because the trees are nature. By being the tallest living objects on the ground, you in some sense assume them to be the icon of nature itself. So what is this thing? It's almost like you could imagine that if you were to walk around the landscape of this period where these things were dominant, maybe early Devonian or whatever, this might be your idea of nature, these giant mounds of whatever they are. Yeah, I mean, they were basically the the floral lords of the earth. There was nothing else to, to rival them. So I think we should explore more the uh, the continuing scientific debate about what the prototaxides is. But before that, let's take a break, and then when we come back, we can delve into mushroom theory. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about these fossil organisms from hundreds of millions of years ago known as prototaxides, these giant pillars that used to be by far the tallest thing on land. And there's been this great debate about what these fossils were when they were alive. Was it the the, the trunk of a rotting conifer tree that was full of uh, uh, you know uh, fungal fibers? Was it a giant alga? Or was it in fact a fungus? And now we're going to get into the details of the fungus theory. Yeah, despite the the, the conifer versus algae past for uh, prototaxites, the, the most popular hypothesis at the moment uh, seems to be the fungus hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say there are not criticisms or questions regarding the fungus hypothesis, but it does seem to be the most popular interpretation. Amazing. A, a giant six meter tall pillar of fungus. Right. Now, I, I do think it is important to note that we are not saying giant mushroom per se because that brings to mind a certain image like of, a shiitake shape right yeah. yeah sort of a super mario brothers kind of world or um or something that you would see on a on a black light uh, fantasy painting <laughs> uh-huh. in a room um you know we're no nobody is interpreting this as as having looked like a straight up um uh, you know, cliche mushroom, right? With an airbrush fairy sitting on top of it, right? But but basically, the the fungus interpretation comes uh, comes down to the the organism's internal structure. It's composed of interwoven tubes, just five uh, to fifty microns across, and this would indicate not a plant, but a fungi, a lichen, or 
perhaps even an algae. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of this points in that direction here as well. Uh, but on this issue, I want to turn back to Huber again, uh, because this is what he has to say about the algae interpretation and ultimately uh, the, the, uh, the move towards uh, the fungal interpretation. Okay. Quote, in my opinion, Prototaxides does not have the structural anatomy nor morphology of an algae. Chemotaxonomic analysis by Nicholas, 1976, concluded that the chemical constituents found in Prototaxites, certain fatty acids, cutin and suberin, differed from modern algae but did not preclude an algal affinity. Lack of evidence of lignified supporting structures in the otherwise weak tissues uh, and presumed erect habit would have imposed considerable stress in a terrestrial habitat. The presence of the compounds associated with a terrestrial habitat raised the possibility that the genus could survive on land, but did not prevent reiteration that the algal affinity was still possible. The anatomy, morphology, and occurrences cannot be refuted so easily. He also points to uh, uh, 1976 transmission electron microscope uh, findings from Rudolf Schmidt, uh, and this was uh, uh, a paper titled uh, Septal Pores in Prototaxites, an Enigmatic Devonian Plant. Uh, in this, he reveals that septal pores uh, are, are found here, suggesting uh, fungal affinity. Septal pores are specialized dividing walls between cells, septa, uh, found in almost all species of fungi in the phylum uh, Basidiomycota. He points out that the inherent size of prototaxites has long been a barrier to some when it comes to accepting fungal affinity. And he counters this by pointing out that we have you know, various examples of, of, of quite large contemporary fungi uh, and extensive mycelia networks. Uh, he poses that perhaps prototaxites itself had a vast underground uh, mycelia network as well, but we just don't have fossil evidence of that mycelia network. Right. But the possible picture here is is fascinating. An underground kingdom of prototaxides erecting uh, enormous fruiting bodies high into the air to send its spores on the breeze, spreading its kingdom even wider. Which causes me to have deeper thoughts about the role of fungus in the evolution of land creatures and land ecosystems. Yeah, this is the kind of uh, of, of, of mental image that uh, the real hardcore uh, fungus fans, I think, uh, could really get behind. Uh-huh. This is like this is a, a, a Paul Stamets uh, dream right here. I, I've got a question here. You ever, you ever wonder why we live on land and not underwater? Um, less wet? <laughs> I mean, it, maybe it seems like a stupid question, but, you know, I stand by that. Like, why Why is it that we live in this evolutionary context, uh, land-based ecosystems rather than under the water where we, our ancestors came from and where we very well could have remained? Uh, if, if you picture life on Earth in the Cambrian period, about 500 million years ago, peek under the surface of the water and you would find lots of life oceans swarming with strange armies of scuttling undulating bilaterally symmetrical animals billions of trilobites you got you know these extinct bottom dwelling animals shaped kind of like death metal roly polies mm-hmm. uh, many legged protoarthropods with hardened plates of armor on their backs but also all these other organisms uh, like the the lobe legged spiked worm that we call hallucigenia we've talked about that oh, yeah. Before uh, a group of uh, creatures called Opabinia, which are swimming arthropods with five eyes and a single long hose-like proboscis tentacle reaching out the front of the head. It was also the time when complex predator-prey relationships probably first evolved, with predators possibly including the huge creature called Anomalocaris. And it was a time of uh, geologically rapid evolution and diversification of marine animal body forms and survival strategies. If you look in the period just before the Cambrian period, which is known as the Ediacaran period, there you, you don't find any of this stuff. You find you know maybe little indications of soft-bodied worms, but like where are all these animals? And then uh, of course they didn't occur in an instant, but on a geological time scale, all these different animal body forms with all this uh, morphological diversity, it all happens pretty rapidly. But of course it has long been the case that we understood all this was taking place under the water in the oceans. That was simply where the life was back then. Uh, Like we know from the fossil record that if you go back far enough, almost all archaic life on Earth lived in the oceans. In the Precambrian world, 
it seems the difference between ocean and land was like the difference between a lush forest and a lifeless desert. In order to survive on land, an animal would have to find a way to tolerate dryness, of course. I mean, that's a big one. But as well as other threats, you know, direct exposure to radiation from a star, which we now know as sunlight. Seems nice to us, but if you're not used to it, it's probably pretty bad because it contains potentially deadly UV radiation. Um, And then perhaps most dawning of all, this would be a barren landscape, an environment impoverished of chemical nutrition. Where do you get your nutrition and food from if you decide to go live up on the land? The land is dry, devoid, sun-blasted plateau of death. I think from like a you know Cambrian type period, you could think of land as being like Mars, you know, like what could mm-hmm. live there. What could live there at the time is probably limited to the kinds of things we imagine possibly living on Mars, if there is any life on Mars, right? You know, maybe like microscopic bacterial type organisms. So how did our rich modern world of plants and animals and everything else come about? What did it take to turn these lifeless protrusions of rocky crust into living, breathing ecosystems? It appears, especially after some research in the past few years, that the answer might well be little tiny sprigs of fungus. That Ah. is what it took to make the land livable. Uh, So let's back up a few years. Uh, I wanted to mention that I was reading a 2016 Scientific American article about research postulating that the first Earth organism to take up life on land was actually a fungus. Uh, Now, there have been some developments since then, but this was back in 2016. Uh, This was a now extinct fungal organism called Tortotubus. Uh, And I was immediately thinking, I want a T-shirt for my neighbor Tortotubus. Uh, But this was based on research published in 2016 in the Botanical Journal of the Linnaean Society, based on physical evidence including samples from Libya and Chad that were 440 to 445 million years old. And this, again, would have been a time when the land was basically barren. But these fossils contained evidence of microscopic filaments of fungus that are uh, normally used to leach chemical nutrients from soil. But this would have been at a time when there was essentially nothing else that we know of living on the land. So what did this have to do with us? Well, land ecosystems, of course, depend on soil, right? Soil is the life. Plants need nutrient-rich topsoil in order to thrive, and animals need plants in order to thrive. So where did the soil to support the evolution of land plants come from? Perhaps it came from early land-colonizing fungus like Tortotubus. According to paleontologist Martin Smith of uh, Durham University in Britain, uh, he was at Cambridge when he did this research, and he's quoted in this article, quote, By building up deeper, richer, more stable soils, Tortotubus would have paved the way for larger, more complex green plants to quite literally take root, in turn providing a food source for animals and allowing the escalation of terrestrial ecosystems. So the idea here is the fungus is the foothold. It's what creates the opportunity for land to be colonized by life forms evolved from the marine life forms below. I like that. The fungus is the foothold. Hold. Uh-huh. There's and, another shirt for you. Right. Uh, and then uh, also featured in the same article, uh, Smith says, quote, By the time Tortatubus went extinct, the first trees and forests had come into existence. This humble subterranean fungus steadfastly performed its rotting and recycling service for some 70 million years as life on land transformed from simple crusty green films to a rich ecosystem that wouldn't look out of place in a tropical greenhouse today. So you go from almost Mars to, you know, forests and plants, and it's fungus like this tortotubus that probably helped make the soil to allow that to happen. Right. Because because otherwise, uh, to your point, like it's the difference between the rich, complex, and and perhaps in, in many cases, overwhelming life beneath the waters and the desert of, of the surface. And the desert might be a fine, if you can flop out there, that might be a good way to get out of uh, the, the competition for life and, of course, all that death that's going on below. Uh-huh. But then, yeah, there's nothing to eat. You're, you're, you're out there away from all your food sources. You're going to have to flop back down. Right. But yeah. eventually, with time, you reach the point where there, there is food up here. There is a, the, the food 
foothold is there. There is there is now a a, a, a new uh, domain to colonize and conquer. Right. Uh, so about Tortuga specifically, I, I want to say that did it have a mushroom? Did it have a fruiting body like a like a mushroom cap that we know of? Uh, at the time this article was published, there was not evidence of whether this fungus produced a fruiting body like a mushroom. So so if you make your T-shirt, I don't know if you can righteously depict the the mushroom form for Tortuga. <laughs> I don't know. It's maybe got to be like a little microscopic filament. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so early fungus that colonized land was actually able to mine lifeless rocks and minerals for some nutrients. And that's also pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Like, uh, the, generally, you need to get your nutrients from other life forms. And of course, fungus does decompose other life forms like a fungus helps the rot and recycling process we were just talking about, but it can also extract some nutrients just from the mineral crust of the earth. And using that process can help turn lifeless topsoil into something more like the rich stuff you think of in your garden today. But it, it doesn't stop there, of course. Once early land plants like liverworts, uh, often thought to be one of the you know earliest forms of land plants, once they come on the scene, plants and fungi also form you know complex symbiotic relationships with one another. They, in different ways, benefit from each other's presence. Uh, I, I was reading a piece about a, uh, it was based on a CBC documentary about prehistoric fungus, and uh, there was a quote from an associate professor of plant soil interactions at the University of Leeds named Katie Field, and uh, she said, ultimately, quote, fungi helped plants move away from being these marginal, tiny little things on the water's edge into large forests and entire ecosystems. So the fungi paved the way for plants to move away from the water's edge and colonize the continents. Yeah, like these these essentially become the small-scale forests uh, in which the uh, Devonian uh, animals would live, things that were essentially like like millipedes and centipedes mm. and, uh, uh, you know, early things like mites and so forth. Like, you know, very small-scale life, but they, they need an environment. They need a place to conduct their business. They need things to eat. And this was, this was their jungle. Yes. Uh, another really interesting point brought to my attention by that same CBC piece uh, that uh, I'd never read about this before, but th- this is about the role of prehistoric fungus in shaping the evolution and eventual trophic dominance of the mammals that became our direct ancestors. Without fungus, we almost certainly wouldn't exist in multiple ways. And here's another one of those ways. All right. So think about the KT extinction event. We've discussed it many times on the show. Uh, it's the, the event that killed the dinosaurs, the non-avian dinosaurs, the dinosaurs that did not become modern day birds died in this event. Uh, About 65 to 66 million years ago, there was a great and sudden dying of many life forms, maybe something like 70% of all life on Earth went extinct. Uh, I think about 80% of animal species disappeared. Many scientists think this was probably mostly due to an enormous impact from space. So there's still some disagreement about the relative role of other things like volcanic eruptions and other factors. But the impact hypothesis, which is the, the most common, most important factor that's attributed these days, it states that a giant comet or asteroid at orbital speed struck the Earth in an area that is now the Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan Peninsula. And this impact, of course, it kicked up stuff. It kicked up an unbelievable amount of dust and particulate matter, which clouded the atmosphere and blocked sunlight, possibly for months at a time, which would kill off a huge amount of Earth's plant life, which, of course, needs sunlight to survive. You cut off the sunlight, the plants die. Right. This is, of course, the the same uh, uh, concept that is employed in the concept of nuclear winter, yeah. in which um, a, a nuclear war would send up enough uh, material, the, you know, the smoke of, of uh, firestorm burning cities, burning forests, mm-hmm. uh, sending all that stuff up into the atmosphere and creating a kind of uh, sarcophagus uh, on the earth, uh, preventing uh, uh, as much sunlight from reaching the earth yes. surface. Yeah, uh, yeah, similar concept. So, uh, of course, the the most direct problem with this is it would disrupt the food chain at its source, right? The food chain is typically based on photosynthetic organisms uh, that make their bodies by using sunlight. They die without the sunlight, and then with them dead, what can all the animals and other things eat? So, so it's going to kill 
things all throughout the food chain through resource deficiency. But there's another thing here that is worth considering, which is the role of fungus. So a, a blotted sky would lead to an earth just covered in dead, decaying plant matter. Uh, and again, the sky is dark. So this is almost a perfect condition for fungi to thrive. Mm. Think of earth after the KT impact as mold world. It's mold planet. Maybe not literally mold, but, you know, the probably mold. I don't know. I didn't look into it. It's fungus. Um, so it would be boom time for fungus and it would represent a threat to surviving animals which could succumb to fungal infections in mm. a world where fungus is all over the place and thriving. And suddenly in this context, in a world where for hundreds of millions of years the dominant animals have been reptile formed – our tiny mammalian ancestors would quite suddenly have a powerful survival advantage over reptiles being warm-blooded. Uh, in fact, it seems that one of the pressures driving the evolution of warm-bloodedness is the threat of infection by fungus, like your warm body, your dog's warm body. The warm bodies of the rats under the floorboards are in part machines for fighting parasitic infections by fungus. Uh, to quote Arturo Casadevall, a professor of public health at Johns Hopkins University, uh, quote, the reptiles are quite susceptible to fungal diseases, but your typical mammal, which maintains a temperature in the mid-30s or so, and I guess that'd be Celsius, not Fahrenheit, uh, creates a thermal exclusionary zone for fungi. Huh. Thus, mammals being warm-blooded gave them a foothold to become more successful and dominant across multiple ecosystems during this time of doom and rot for the cold-blooded kingdom of reptiles. I, I think that's fascinating. Tens of millions of years before the discovery of penicillin, killer fungus was already offering us a leg up by having <laughs> shaped our evolution in such a way that we resist, you know, our ancestors resisted it and the reptiles could not as easily resist it, thus making, helping mammals become more more dominant. And just one more thing on this uh, subject of general prehistoric fungus. There was a, a 2019 study I was looking at that, that chased land-based fungus development even farther back into prehistory. So we had already uh, we had already seen evidence that the first living organisms to uh, to, to colonize to, to fully colonize the land were probably these little uh, fungal organisms. There was a paper published in Nature in 2019 by Laurent et al. called Early Fungi from the Proterozoic Era in Arctic Canada. And there was an excellent article about this research in the New York Times by former Stuff to Blow Your Mind guest Carl Zimmer. Oh, uh, yes. I, I recommend checking that out. It's called A Billion-Year-Old Fungus May Hold Clues to Life Survival on Land. Uh, but the short version is that in 2019, this group of researchers, they published findings of uh, fossil remains of an ancient fungus, which they named Orasophyra giraldi. And this fungus is apparently about a billion years old, oh, roughly wow. like 600 million years older than the uh, previous last common ancestor of all fungus had been thought to emerge. And it, if this is correct, it would definitely mean that fungi were colonizing land on their own before plants, before anything else that we know of lived on land except maybe some bacteria. Uh, if so, what were they eating? You know, possibly bacteria. We, we don't know for sure. So basically Zimmer's saying that we are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old fungi. I don't think there's a suggestion that the fungus is an ancestor of ours, <laughs> but it is – it suggested that this fungus probably played an important role in shaping the ecosystems that mm -hmm. allowed our direct ancestors to survive. So we are not of Zugdmoy, but we are uh, at least unwitting. Um, we're in the debt of Zugdmoy. Yeah. <laughs> we are in her debt. Yeah. yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we will return specifically to uh, interpretations of prototaxites. All right. We're back. All right, so we were discussing uh, the proposal that the Prototaxides fossils were actually gigantic stalks of fungus, uh, not a rotting conifer tree with fungus in it, not a giant alga, uh, but just a huge piece of fungus, a tree-sized piece of fungus. 
What is the evidence for this? Well, there was some. There's been more and more evidence supporting the fungal hypothesis in the the recent decades. Uh, uh, to read a quote from an article I was reading about this in New Scientist from uh, C. Kevin Boyce, a geophysicist at the University of Chicago, quote. No matter what argument you put forth, people say it's crazy. <laughs> a six-meter fungus doesn't make any sense, but here's the fossil. <laughs> uh, and so why, does Boyce, why is Boyce so confident that it is a fungus? Well, Boyce was involved in research that attempted to look for clues to the classification of Prototaxides fossils by analyzing different levels of trace carbon compounds within them. Uh, I, I thought this was really interesting. Now, note that this is not carbon dating. These fossils are far too old to be subject to accurate carbon dating methods, and they're not a, they're not trying to establish dates for them. But it does follow some similar principles to what's done in radiocarbon dating, which is looking at different isotopes of the element carbon uh, within the object. And in, so in carbon dating, these isotopes, I think, are usually carbon-12 and carbon-14. In the research on prototaxides, it was carbon-12 and carbon-13. And basically, the reasoning went like this. Plants get essentially all of their carbon content from the CO2 in the air. Again, one of my favorite facts about nature. It's so counterintuitive. Plants make their bodies out of CO2 that they absorb from the atmosphere using energy acquired from sunlight to do the chemical work. But the atoms that make up the carbon content of plants, that's from the air. When you think about it, next time you burn charcoal, you're burning carbon that was once the body of a plant that was made out of gas from the air. I don't think I'll ever get over that. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it always seems like the natural thing to assume is that the matter that makes up a plant comes up out of the ground. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, some small content like minerals and trace elements and stuff like that might be absorbed through the water, of course, absorbed through the roots. But yeah, the carbon content comes from the CO2 in the air. Out of thin air. Yeah. Uh, and so for this reason, of course, because plants make their make their you know, the carbon in their bodies out of the air, the ratios of different carbon isotopes found in plants are fairly predictable for plants that were alive at the same time. It's based on the ratios of carbon isotopes found in the atmosphere. But the ratios of carbon-12 and carbon-13 found in fungus are not always so predictable since, like us, they get the carbon content of their bodies from food rather than from the air. And that food could potentially include a number of sources produced wacky isotope ratios between carbon-12 and carbon-13. And what the researchers found was that, in fact, the carbon-12 to carbon-13 levels in these prototaxides fossils were not consistent, suggesting that they are that they were not plants, that the carbon in them was coming from somewhere other than the air, and thus that they were less likely to be plants, more likely to be something that was making their bodies out of food that they ate, which would include fungus. Hmm. Another quote from Boyce in that New Scientist article, quote, A six-meter fungus would be odd enough in the modern world, but at least we're used to trees quite a bit bigger. Plants at that time were a few feet tall. Invertebrate animals were small, and there were no terrestrial vertebrates. This fossil would have been all the more striking in such a diminutive landscape. Again, standing up above anything else that would have been around it. Yeah, it just would have dwarfed everything else. So based on what I've read, I think I'm fairly convinced by the fungal hypothesis that this was a a giant six meter, 20 foot tall piece of fungus. Yeah, and and I, I like the idea that is often presented too that it, it would have need it would have needed to to grow that high so as to help spread the spores. Mm-hmm. Like you have a you know a tangible reason for achieving that height. I don't. Is there a reason uh, in the in the algae theory about why an, a, a giant alga would need to be that tall? I or is it that it's not tall? That they were supposed to be horizontal or something? Um, I, you do see the, the horizontal uh, aspect of that brought up mm. at times. So that, that certainly seems to be a possibility. Uh, but we'll get into another horizontal theory here in a minute. Um, now, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, th- that uh, algae hypothesis has never completely gone away. And one of the more interesting angles on it is that um, prototaxites might have been a composite organism arising from uh, algae living among fungal filaments. 
this is, of course, nothing completely alien because we have these today. Uh, we have lichen. Right. So, and this would have been essentially a parasitic or symbiotic relationship between the, the algae and the fungus, uh, but it would have essentially been a, a giant lichen. All right, then. Now, another tantalizing theory relates to liverworts, uh, which we mentioned al- already as being a you know primitive uh, form of uh, of plant life, kind of kind of like uh, like moss, yeah, proto terrestrial plants, yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's been suggested that instead of these things being um, vertical pillars, instead of it being this phallic landscape um, that, is, uh, that is so hauntingly depicted in some of these uh, instances of paleo art uh, detailing prototaxites, what if instead, uh, yeah, they were just rolled up carpets of liverworts? Uh, now, let me read a description here. This was uh, from a... Um, this was discussed in a 2010 American Journal of Botany paper by Graham et al., and I'm going to read just a quote from it here. Quote, our comparative analyses instead indicate that prototaxites formed from partially degraded wind, gravity, or water-rolled mats of mixotrophic liverworts having fungal and sanobacterial associates, much like the modern liverwort genius um, Marchantia. We propose that the fossil body is largely derived from abundant, highly degradation-resistant tubular rhizoids of Marchantia. Cantioid liverworts intermixed with tubular microbial elements. So uh, I know that that sounds like a bit much, but basically the idea here is: um, imagine astroturf has been laid out um, across the Devonian landscape, uh-huh. and then uh, the wind starts a blowing. Wind or gravity or water, right? Uh, all three of these things begins to roll the uh, the astroturf back up. Like into, wrestling mats. Yeah, like wrestling mats. Uh, rolling them up into these uh, big tubes then, uh, these big rolls of astroturf, and those big rolls of astroturf just set there and then eventually, you know, fossilized. Like basically that's the idea, except instead of it being astroturf, it is uh, the, the, the liverworts that have grown across the surface of the planet. Hmm. Now... Yeah, this is... Okay, I I won't deny it just because it's less exciting than the giant uh, pillars of fungus. In a sense, it's less exciting, yes. Yeah, it's certainly less exciting, but I would argue that it is equally weird. It is, uh, it is also yeah. just like a weird idea of the landscape, like a landscape that looks like they're just a bunch of rolled up old carpets made out of green slime. Uh, that's, that's strange. Uh, and uh, apparently this is not... Uh, you know, the, the, apparently some uh, uh, commentators have some issues with this particular theory. It's not – I don't think it's widely uh, accepted, but it is still such a strange idea. I, I can't help but uh, but find it, you know, weirdly amusing. Uh, there, there was a, 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 actually a, a – Okay, a paleo- I deign to be amused by it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was actually a, a, a bit of art with this study uh, that's worth looking up if you can find it. And it's – yeah, it's just bizarre. It's like this bright green landscape and then – there are all these just rolls of moss carpet out there mm-hmm. just laying around like somebody left them as if the gods came to install vegetation on the earth and simply got bored or went off for a smoke <laughs> break and just left everything half finished. <sighs> now, one last question I thought we should uh, look at is obviously, you know, there are no tree sized columns of fungus or whatever they were today. So something happened to the prototaxides to drive them extinct. Any idea what that might be? Uh, I think we don't know for sure, but Huber has suggested something, the same uh, researcher you were pointing to earlier. Huber has suggested that actually the prototaxides suffered parasitic infestations from recently evolved insects. Mm-hmm. So remember, this, this would be also a time when the land is being colonized by various forms of invertebrates. And these land-dwelling arthropods would dig little holes into the stalks of prototaxides. You can apparently see evidence of these probable insect boreholes in the fossil remains of prototaxides today, and these might have played some role in driving the giant fungus extinct. Again, it comes back to the idea that the the, the, the fungal world uh, essentially uh, you know drives out into the wilderness and remakes it into something that's habitable. Uh, but then come the new inhabitants. Uh-huh. Then come the inheritors of the earth, and oh, but, the but, inheritors generally do not treat those that came before them uh, so well. 
So true, but of course, the fungus never really goes away, right? That's it right. just kind of goes underground. <laughs> and it is true. I think we do have to remind ourselves, like, we can get so obsessed with species uh, that we, we forget sort of like the broader view of life itself, you know? Uh, so, yes, it's not like, it's not like the, the day the, the, the fungus died. It's not like the day that the fungal uh, legions uh, lost. No, they, they continued and continue uh, to thrive on the planet. Uh, but they, they thrive where, they, uh, uh, where, where there is a, a niche for them to occupy. They fit right in there. Yep. Sometimes there's a shroom. Sometimes there's a shroom. He's the shroom for his particular time and place. <laughs> Absolutely. So there you have it. Uh, Prototaxites. Uh, now, obviously, this is a topic where, you know, hopefully there'll be more studies uh, in the future that will shed more light on this fossil mystery, uh, this mystery fossil. But uh, but uh, hopefully we, we, were, we did a good job here about just, you know, introducing you to its world, uh, to its strange world. We are not done with prehistoric fungus. I'm sure there will be more to come back to in the future. Yes, uh, praise Zugmoy. We uh, probably will. Uh, speaking of Zugmoy, the, the demon queen of fungus from uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, in the Underdark in Dungeons & Dragons, they have a particular um, like tree-sized mushroom that everybody like makes. It's, like it's a wood substitute for the Underdark uh, called Zerka wood. Hmm. Uh, so I, I can't help but sense um, an affinity here between Zerka wood and uh, uh, Prototaxites. Uh, it seems it seem like basically the same concept. Well, let's hope insects don't uh, uh, don't start boring holes in the <laughs> underdark. Yeah. Also, I'm not completely sure you would be able to build, say, a log cabin out of Prototaxites. But but Huber does mention uh, a particular species of of large mushroom that that was traditionally carved into some sort of shape uh, by uh, native peoples of North America, I believe. Huh. Uh, you know, one thing, qu- one question I didn't find the answer to yet, maybe it's out there, is how hard would this thing have been? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, could you, yeah, like, could you carve it into boards and make lumber out of it, or would it have been relatively soft and easy to knock over with a good shove? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess luckily there there, there aren't going to be any large animals that are going to come and push you over. It's right. going gonna, gonna to come down to, uh, kind of like we were talking with the rolls, it's going to come down to wind, water, and gravity. Yeah. And, and these things are inevitably going to fall over they did fall over that's the that's how they're preserved uh, as fossils horizontally and not vertically right um in, in the same way that that our, our our tallest and most impressive trees today will inevitably at some point fall over and become horizontal um but uh, but yeah, I think it comes back to what Huber said too about like this being kind of the sticking point of sometimes for people uh, with the vertical fungal uh, interpretation. People just say, well, how could that be? How could these things have existed? How could they have stood? How could they have grown like this? Uh, and again, it just comes back to the intriguing nature of it as well. It, it was just such an alien world, and this was the, the largest alien uh, on the landscape. A dozer for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, you know where they are. They're over at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. They're also wherever you get your podcasts. There are a million places to get a podcast these days. Uh, we just ask that we, you know wherever you go to get Stuff to Blow Your Mind, just make sure that you subscribe so you'll always get new episodes. And uh, rate and review. That, that really helps us out in the long term. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank <laughs> you.